I love it when you're walking through the mangroves and you just pause for a few seconds. But when you take a pause, it really doesn't take long for life to start to show itself. Welcome to Waterlands, a series brought to you by the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust. I'm Roxy Furman, a zoologist and filmmaker. In this series, I'm exploring the watery places that once covered the land, through the stories of people and wildlife that have been shaped by them. One of the things that are really common in mangrove systems are these little crabs. Ooh. In fact, one's walking over my foot right now. A small little, little, little fiddler crab with its one big claw scrambling from one hole to another. Around the world, we're witnessing the increasingly extreme impacts of climate change and global warming. When disaster strikes, it usually manifests itself through water. Floods, landslides, tsunamis, storms, heat waves and droughts are all becoming more frequent and more intense. But can water also be part of the solution to solving the climate crisis? If I wait here for just a couple more minutes, I know that the whole floor is just going to be teeming with little crabs and mollusks and everything just suddenly appears when you take the time to pause and watch. Today, we're spending time in the lush swamps of Madagascar's mangroves and in the wild beauty of our British estuaries, where I'll be finding out how wetlands help save the planet. I am in a small dugout wooden canoe, floating with the tide down this beautiful channel that is fringed on both sides by lush, incredible mangrove forests. Mangrove forests, like the one Leah Glass is in, are located where sea and land meet. With their sprawling, twisted roots snaking above the water, these otherworldly-looking wetlands are also home to a great diversity of wildlife, while also acting as important stores of carbon and absorbing much the shock of extreme weather events like storms and tsunamis. Leah is in northwest Madagascar, where she works for marine conservation organisation Blue Ventures. She's gone out at the crack of dawn to capture some of the unique elements of her local mangrove that make it such a special place. What you experience when you're in the mangroves depends very much on the tide. At the moment, it's high tide. Um, it's, in fact, it's a spring tide, so it's extra high. So the forests are completely flooded. All you can see is the top of their trees. The sun rose about an hour ago. The water birds that inhabit the mangroves, like the heron and the egret, they've come out to get their first catch of the day. It's an incredibly peaceful environment. If I look over the side of my uh, canoe, I can also see schools of small fish. Many fish species, particularly a lot of commercially important fish species, use the mangroves as a nursery. So mangrove systems have these dense root systems which provide a protective environment for, for juvenile or for young fish. 
as they grow before they go out into the open ocean. So these systems are incredibly important for the health of the broader marine ecosystem. As I'm floating down, there's actually a, I've got a companion on the river, this time a human one. It's a, another small pirogue with local fishermen. Bulatara! Mangroves, particularly at low tide, are really important for, for women small-scale fishers because they can be accessed on foot and they can catch species like crab to help supplement the household income and also put food on the table for dinner. We'll hear from Leah again later as she returns at low tide. But first, let's zoom out a little. Rowan Cooper, an editor at New Scientist magazine, spends a fair amount of his time thinking and writing about some of the world's biggest challenges. And a couple of years back, he began a thought experiment. How could a trillion dollars help solve these problems? Although it's an incredible amount of money that I'll never have, it is an amount of money that is out there. It's 1% of world GDP. There's huge amounts of unpaid tax, like trillions of dollars. Um, money's found around the world to tackle various crises, especially, you know, look at coronavirus. We've had trillions of dollars spent on that. So the idea is, well, let's just get a bit of this money and see what we could do with some other problems in the world. The list of urgent issues he felt needed addressing included tackling inequality, curing disease, and of course, the worldwide climate crisis. Climate change is such a big problem. You know, it's been called a hyper object, hasn't it? Like, it's so big that we can't grasp it in time or space how to deal with it. So I've looked at how we could accelerate the transition to net zero, how we can reform world agriculture, looked at biodiversity, which is, again, it's, it's like often thought of separately but you've got to work on on biodiversity if you want to try to solve the climate crisis because they both interact so much and I looked at also how to get carbon out of the atmosphere so all of those are different ways of getting into the problem. This is where wetlands come into it. Converting or restoring wetlands that have been degraded and lost around the world is absolutely key to tackling climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis. Wetlands are underrated, I think, in terms of their importance as carbon sinks and as areas of biodiversity. In peatlands, for example, there's a lot of um, carbon stored deep underground, just locked up. If it's intact, it locks up carbon really nicely, really securely over vast areas. It's held in anaerobic conditions, so all that biomass can't degrade and, and can't release, or it shouldn't be allowed to release, carbon and methane and greenhouse gases back into the atmosphere. Then there's also coastal wetlands you know mangroves and then seaweeds right kelp and seagrass there's a lot of carbon stored in in those kinds of um, macro algae it's kind of off our radar really it's you know we don't notice it like we notice trees and like we enjoy trees there's also our salt marshes boggy and marshy they're home to low-growing plants that trap and bury carbon in the mud but they are in danger um, so most wetlands are being drained and then given over to agriculture. And most of that is for either to ranch cattle or to grow soya to then feed to cattle. So 
to stop the destruction of wetlands, we need to change the way we're using the land. Rowan is clear on exactly what needs to happen. Start to restore a lot of the land that's been given over to agriculture and soil production and cattle ranching back to lovely carbon-rich biodiverse wetlands. There's a lot of things hunkering down today because of the wind, but um, you can see little egrets, you've got great egrets. We've also had a marsh harrier sort of going across the tops of the, of the rushes. We've still got some really good flocks of wintering birds, sort of teal and golden plover. They'll be moving off at the end of, end of the month and then we'll be starting to get sort of our breeding bird species and things moving in. This is Sturt Marshes, where Alice Laver is site manager. On our left, we've got a huge area of developing salt marsh, but then we've got lovely little fields that are part of the original field network, as they were, sort of really old traditional field meadows and hay meadows. We've also got arable fields, so that's quite interesting because it's not necessarily what you'd expect on a nature reserve. But what we do do is that we leave the sort of covered crop, the sort of stubble, and that's brilliant for our brown hares and our sort of wintering farm birds. Created in 2010 in partnership with the Environment Agency, Steart Marshes is one of the UK's largest new wetland nature reserves. It's situated at the end of a peninsula in Somerset, where the River Parrot meets the Bristol Channel. From above, Steart is revealed as a sprawling network of flooded fields and tidal creeks, changing hourly with the dynamic estuary tide. And if we look across, We've actually got Otterhampton marshes. You can see it's a lot wetter than the main marsh. And that is because it's a regulated tidal exchange area. So we've actually got structures that enable us to hold the seawater back. Uh, and we've created saline lagoons. But this has only become a vast mosaic of wetlands very recently, in the last decade. Alice shelters from the wind inside a bird hide and explains more. This site used to look really, really different. So if you can imagine, there was anywhere between 40 and 50 different fields, um, all different owners. Each field had a ditch boundary, had old hedges. Um, and you had some of the biggest arable fields in the area. You had permanent pasture and you had ryegrass days. So quite mixed, intensive farming landscape. Um, what we've done is we've put in a new flood bank uh, and we've punched a hole or breached the old flood bank after filling in the ditches and removing the hedges. We've let seawater onto all of those fields and then that allowed natural processes to just develop. And, and what we have now is lots of, lots of lovely salt marsh in front of us. And we know that we've got 16 key species already established. Come the spring we get breeding avocets, little ring plovers and oyster catchers and people can enjoy the hides sort of out of the wind which you can hear today with sort of pretty exposed sight uh, but really close-up views of that which is brilliant. But what is it about a site like Sturt Marshes that helps us deal with the climate crisis? We know that all wetland habitats store carbon and they're the, the best habitat storing carbon because, because they remain wet. So overlooking there, Otterhampton marshes, lots of mud, lots of seawater. So we know that there's, there's carbon being locked in there. 
in the silt and in the actual salt marsh plants themselves as they photosynthesize and they store that carbon. The area behind us, the main salt marsh area, we know that that's accreted, uh, which means the silt has built up over a metre in some places. So sort of in the winter and the autumn when we have those really rough seas, we get a lot of sediment brought in and deposited. So not only do we get carbon being locked away in that silt, but also as that silt covers the plants that hold carbon, you're locking in additional carbon again. It's happening all over and it continues to happen. The process will slow down, obviously, because it's the first few years of accretion. But the amazing thing with salt marshes is as the sea level rises, it will continue to accrete at the rate of sea level. So you've got that constant adapting to, to climate change and going at the rate that it needs to. So really, really vital. This has now been proved in a landmark four-year study by Manchester Metropolitan University. Researchers discovered that wetlands, like sturt, are more effective at locking away carbon than almost any other type of habitat. Over four years, sturt marshes stored 19,000 tonnes of carbon. This is equivalent to taking 38,000 cards off the road every year. In order to have the same impact from reforestation, we would have to plant more than a million trees over 10 years. Alongside this incredible work sequestering carbon, Sturt is also home to an impressive number of species. Because of the previous land use and the way that it was, you know, intensely farmed, the habitat wasn't here for them. So especially things like, you know, our waders um, and our waterfowl. A key species that has moved in that was certainly wasn't here before is the, the wintering snipe. So we had, we had nearly 500 in the last count. And yeah, the big numbers of avocets. So lots of bird life and wildlife that wouldn't be here if steer marshes hadn't been created. The answer is right here. A cheaper and more sustainable way to protect against flooding and a much needed space for wildlife. On the other side of the planet, in Madagascar, Leah Glass is continuing on her exploration of one of the world's other great carbon stores. It's now later in the day and the tide has gone down. So now we're actually in the mangrove forest. And it's, yeah, it's really quite a different environment compared to floating down the channel earlier, but very much beautiful in its own right. I'm about ankle deep in sticky mud and, and surrounded by a dense forest of mangroves with their roots digging deep into the sticky, sticky mud. There's very much still the birds around, the egrets, the herons, crabs scratching and crawling around the roots of trees. You can also see a, a mud skipper. Low tide is a really good opportunity to learn more about how mangroves have adapted to this really harsh environment. Mangroves exist between the high and low tide levels along coastlines across the tropics. So in order to be able to survive in this, what is really quite a harsh environment, particularly the salinity of the seawater, Mangroves have evolved special adaptations to enable them not just to survive, but really to thrive in these conditions. The leaves of mangroves have, they have quite a waxy coating, which helps to seal in the water. 
and minimise evaporation, so really making them very efficient at storing all this fresh water that they possibly can. But what makes mangroves truly extraordinary is their amazing ability to trap and store carbon. Mangroves have evolved to live in their soil, but this soil, this mud in its own right, is also really important. As material, as sediment, as organic matter runs off from the terrestrial areas and out to the ocean, mangroves help to slow down the tidal movements and the waves to create a fairly calm environment which enables the sediment and the organic matter in this material from the terrestrial environments to settle in the mangroves. And over time, this gradually builds up. Below the mangroves can be these really deep, in some places over 10 meter deep, basically mud banks. And in this mud is so much organic matter. And a really important input of this organic matter is the mangrove roots. So as they die, they stay in the mud. And because this mud is often underwater, there's not much oxygen, which enables all of this organic matter to stay in the ground and form these huge banks of organic and carbon-rich mud. Mangroves are one of the most efficient carbon stores on Earth and they, they suck in, they sequester between three and five times more carbon dioxide per unit area than tropical rainforests. They really are unique systems. If undisturbed, this carbon that's been locked into the soil can be locked in for millennia, removing it from the environment. If mangroves are lost or disturbed, the carbon in their trees is lost, but particularly some of the huge stores of carbon in their sediments are also lost when they're deforested. And this carbon can be emitted to the atmosphere and contribute towards climate breakdown. So conserving mangroves are really, is really, really important in humanity's fight to address climate breakdown. If we can keep wetlands like these mangroves intact, they will act as a barrier between the open ocean and villages. In the face of rising seas and increasing storms, it's estimated that they provide coastal defence for over 2 million people. And because of their abilities to support fisheries, they're underpinning the livelihood of over 4 million small-scale fishers. When these systems are lost, it is these people that are impacted most. But it's not just mangroves. Lots of wetlands can offer these multiple benefits, including our salt marshes in the UK. Here's the WWT's Alice Laver. Wetlands are fantastic for wildlife, um, but they are so good for so many other things. And the key message is, is, you know, you can have all that, but you can have all these benefits to people as well. So, yeah, what we are hoping and what we are doing is looking to recreate more wetlands all over the UK and see all the benefits that they bring with them. Waterlands is a series brought to you by the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust. It's an 1860 production, and the producer is Eliza Lomas. Head to www.org.uk to find out more.